Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we're excited to be joined by Trevor Kratz. Trevor is founder and president of Buddy Brands. It started as a high-end pet mattress company and has expanded to include several other pet-related brands. We discussed the challenges of entering a crowded market with a premium brand, the importance of brands, and how having multiple related brands is really critical to your business. Sounds interesting, Bela. I mean, you know I'm not a pet guy or a kid guy, but this piques my interest. It's a cool little niche market, and I could see how it might be, uh, might be a really good business. So let's jump right into the interview. Hello, listeners. Today's guest is Trevor Kratz. Uh, he owns multiple businesses and is a very successful entrepreneur and has some great sort of knowledge and information to share with us. Uh, welcome to the show, Trevor. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. So let me ask you a question. If you're at a social event and uh, you get introduced to somebody, and after that introduction, they ask you, Trevor, what do you do? How do you answer that question? You know, I usually try to keep it. It depends, I guess, whether I want to whether I want to go down that rabbit hole with them or not. But I usually answer it. I'm an entrepreneur. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Oftentimes when people hear entrepreneur, they think, oh, so you're unemployed and you live in your mom's basement. Um, so it just kind of depends, I guess, who I'm talking to. Oftentimes I'll just say I own a pet products manufacturing company, which uh, is a bit understated, uh, but I think does the trick. Okay. Well, so that's great. So let's peel that back a little bit. So let's talk about this uh, pet business that you own. Yeah, sure. So about 10 years ago, I was working in the mattress industry. And I saw that there was nothing out there that was as supportive as we had for human beings out there for dogs. So essentially, you know, at the time being a big dog person, my dog buddy, you know, I realized when I took him to the vet one day that, that, uh, you know, big dogs don't live very long. And I was kind of surprised to find this out because my dog, when I, when I was growing up, I had a smaller poodle and she lived to be about 15. And so when the vet told me that he uh, was expected to live nine or 10 years, I was really kind of shocked. And so upon peeling back those layers a little bit further and, and doing a little bit of research, you know, I discovered that the number one reason why big dogs don't live as long as their smaller counterparts are usually due to quality of life issues associated with painful joint problems. And then upon more research, nine out of 10 dogs over the age of 10 actually have arthritis, hip dysplasia and painful joint problems. So it's a really, really common issue. And, you know, knowing what I knew about uh, support systems for humans, and I'd seen firsthand how they'd made a difference in the lives of people, uh, I, I sought out something that was going to do the same thing for my dog. And that's really it in a nutshell. There was really nothing out there. And uh, everything out there that was claiming to be supportive was really just egg crate foam, which I knew was, was, was good for shipping items around the country, but not good for laying on <laughs> Uh, so, you know, out of necessity, we decided to do something not only for Buddy, but for the millions of dogs out there that are afflicted with these painful joint problems and are destined to live a short life. And so we created our, our company called Buddy Rest. And Buddy Rest is a uh, is all about a, it's an orthopedic bed company that is, was game changing at the time 10 years ago. And we introduced the first science based health approach to dog bedding. And so our beds, you know, redistribute weight equally across the surface. They take away painful joint problems, and they promote better joint health as dogs get older. Wow. And that's where I got it started. Cool. So uh, what were you doing before before you started uh, Buddy Buddy Rest? So I've been working in the mattress industry before that, and I bounced around a little bit as a corporate trainer. And I, I've been a sales guy in my heart and a marketing guy probably my whole life. But 
you know, really what I found was it really filled my cup, not only to, to sell products, but also to teach other people how to sell. And so I thought my calling was as a trainer. And, you know, I, to this day, I still do some consulting and some training on the side. Uh, but that really uh, gave me a good base and got me prepared for the, the next adventure in life, which was entrepreneurship. Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, you know, it's a new, a relatively new category, uh, or it's certainly a uh, a higher end category than what typically people might uh, find for, for, for dog beds. And sure. so how did you, how did you overcome those challenges? What were the things that you did to sort of, you know, educate folks about the, the importance of this? Sure. I love the question because it is, it is a massive challenge, especially when you're entering uh, a new uh, innovation into a, a product category, or innovating a new product category altogether. Um, it's, it's difficult and it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of education, uh, not only just for a one-on-one -on -one piece for the customer, but to educate the market. And I'll tell you that, you know, uh, it all really started with, uh, a little bit of self-belief and confidence that you have something right. Because if I listened to everybody that told me that no one's going to spend over a hundred dollars on a dog bed, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. And, and I heard that a lot. And I said, yeah, no, I understand that. But uh, I also see people spend thousands of dollars on mattresses. And I understand the reason why is because of their health and they want a better night's sleep and they want to feel great. And I don't see why that I didn't see why that that wouldn't cross over and apply to pets in the same way, especially now that, you know, things have changed in the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years where, where pets, you know, are more considered to be part of the family and we're no longer dog owners, we're pet parents. And so for me, you know, I saw that there was an opportunity and, um, you know, I, I, I kind of ignored some of the feedback I got and I decided to go ahead and create a product. And so we, we created a product. It was a prototype. And we took it to market. We had a little dog show that was in town and it was it was outside and we hurriedly built a website that didn't work and our banner had a misspelling on it. And it was just kind of a, a nightmare from a show standpoint. Um, and, but what we did get at the show was we got a lot of interest from customers. People wanted to know more and they wanted, they were asking buying questions like how much does this cost and what colors does it come in? And it was really validating for us and it gave us uh, enough confidence to move forward, get the website fixed, um, you know, get the spelling right on our banner and keep at it. And so that's what we did. We launched, uh, we launched our website and, uh, you know, a couple weeks later we made our first sale and then we had a second sale and a third sale and it kind of just organically, uh, kind of organically grew from that. Yeah. So did you do everything online pretty much? So, uh, in the very beginning we had a lot of ambitions. Uh, so in the first couple weeks, obviously there wasn't a whole lot for us to do besides some shows and online, but yeah, as we, in the first couple years, two or three years, as we started to get some traction, we really put some focus in going into brick and mortar retail stores. Um, we knew that our products were more expensive than what was on the shelf. Um, but we also knew that 10 years earlier, dog food had changed the whole market. You know, dog food used to just be something you pick up at, at Walmart and, and it's just a commodity. And we'd seen how people would invest in the health of their animal when it came to dog food. And people were spending 40, 50, 60, hundred dollars on dog food. People were cooking, you know, cooking food for their dogs at dinner time. People were giving them raw diets. And so we really thought that, hey, we're just the tip of the spear. If someone's willing to spend a hundred dollars on a bag of dog food one time, one month, why wouldn't they spend over a hundred dollars or a hundred, hundred, hundred and fifty dollars on a dog bed that's guaranteed to last the lifetime of their animal? And um, so that was where we really pushed hard. And we did get some traction. We got, we got into about 600 pet stores, independent stores, and um, 
what we quickly found out was, and, and, and I like the, the question you asked previously because it ties in here with the education piece. We found out that we were able to educate the, the store owner, but uh, they, were, they were not able to pass along the passion and the education for the product to their part-time uh, you know, uh, summer employee. And then, and ultimately, that summer employee wasn't able to articulate the value of our product to the end consumer. And so, essentially, we had a bunch of expensive beds on shelves. So we would sell a lot of our product, but the resale and, and it was not there. And so we would push product into stores. We wouldn't pull it through stores. And so we tried a lot of different things. We created uh, a lot of training materials. I invested a lot of my time, being that that was my background. I thought we could educate uh, educate our way out of this problem. And this is just what happens being tip of the spear. But after a couple of years of just slow and steady growth and a lot of work, we decided let's go ahead and focus on econ. And I can tell you, flash forward to 2020 and 2021 now, I sure am glad we did. Yeah, yeah. You know, that reminds me of, of an experience I had. Uh, for a period of time, I, I ran a very high-end bicycle manufacturing business. And we went through uh, retail stores, bike shops, in essence, and uh, it was that salesman who was making, you know, 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, because a person would walk into the store and that person was going to leave that store with a very expensive bicycle. And it was that salesperson that was fundamentally going to decide for that person which brand of high-end bicycle they were going to leave with, right? Sure. Unless they already came in knowing that exactly what they wanted, right? So if they were, if they were pre-educated... And they knew the product. They just came in and basically the salesperson took an order. But right. most of the customers knew they wanted a really good bike, but that's all they knew. And it was that salesperson. And so trying to figure out uh, how to motivate, right? How do you inspire that salesperson to, to steer that person to your product uh, is a challenge. So I, I really sort of understand what you're saying here. Absolutely. And I, I love that story, you know, and, and to, I guess to make apples and apples, if you could imagine that there was only one expensive bike in that store and all everybody in the world is used to buying cheap bikes and throwing them away every couple of months and buying another cheap bike. Right. You know, it makes it a real big challenge when you're just on the shelf next to another, uh, next to another uh, product. And, and we think that even though we don't win on price, we went on quality and we went on value every day of the week. But ultimately I think the lesson that, that both of our stories uh, share is that, uh, you know, educating the consumer into the right product is absolutely pivotal. And no matter how great your product is, if you're not able to articulate that in a way that people understand it, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So did you end up migrating pretty much back to e-commerce and selling online? Yeah. So we, uh, we moved to a mostly e-commerce model. We, we do still sell some of our products in stores. Um, but the dog bed piece, uh, you know, is primarily online through our own websites and through some of our partner websites. So you can buy our products on Chewy and Target and Bass Pro Shops and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, that's where the dog bed business ended up. And so, yeah, you know, going back to that, we were in only the dog bed business for the first couple of years. And we saw how um, we had a really nice business, but it was it was still a, it was a niche. Right. And. Uh, and although there's riches and niches, we wanted more market share and we wanted to grow the business into something big and spectacular. And so um, we were looking for opportunities and uh, we, we, we made an acquisition um, for a local company that was selling um, safety products for dogs. And that was kind of our first acquisition. And then we made an acquisition uh, a couple of years later into supplements and treats and CBD and um, and then we also have uh, built a couple of brands along the way, like our Tough Pup brand, 
Um, so nowadays, uh, we're no longer Buddy Rest, we're Buddy Brands. And we're a collection of pet product van, brands, uh, including Buddy Rest, Natural Doggy, Pet Envy, um, Pup IQ, and Tough Pup. And, uh, you know, the reason for the multiple brand approach is really simple. Um, and, and I always like to tell people this because sometimes, uh, sometimes people don't, don't quite understand what our strategy is. But, you know, the, the thing to understand is although we might be selling pet products, not all dog people are the same. And in this day and age with digital marketing, it's incredibly important that you are speaking to your target customer in an authentic way that they resonate with. And unfortunately, that's just not possible when you're attacking all different ends of a marketplace. Oftentimes, you need to um, pivot the brand or pivot the product to make sure it's fitting that particular customer base. And so that's what we've done. I think the, the, the big thing to understand about our strategy, though, is that at the core, uh, all of our products are still um, they're geared around one thing, and that's solving, thing, solving problems for pet people. And that's what we do. And I mean, when I say solving problems, I like to say solving real problems for real pet people because we're not the ones that make uh, cool dog hoodies, although I think those are super cool and cute and all that. That's just not what we do. We focus on solving um, health issues. We focus on so solving anxiety and mobility, pain, allergies, itching, things that are really uh, affecting dogs and making them miserable and affecting their quality of life. And uh, all of our products are solution-based and geared towards uh, helping dogs and improving the quality of life of animals across the world. Yeah. yeah, Excellent. So I have a question for you. I want to go back to those acquisitions. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You started, you started uh, the, the business. What made you decide to buy another business as opposed to saying, you know what, we're going to start our own version of that and we're going to do it better? Sure. So we've done both. We, we have a build and buy uh, strategy going on here. And I think that what we look at is, you know, opportunity knocks, right? And, and you answer it and you explore it and you see if it's a fit. And we never did anything that wasn't uh, uh, highly strategic, right? So it had to fit into what we were doing, had to make sense. Uh, you know, there's different reasons you do different things. One of them is, is that we wanted uh, a trademark that they had because we, we, we thought that there was a potential possibility to expand into that product line and really build something behind that. Another one was we wanted their website because their website was extremely old and had a really high domain authority, and we wanted to leverage that and push our own content management strategy out there and, and do our content marketing through that so we could amplify our voice on the Internet. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's not, uh, there, there has to be a rhyme and a reason, but there's no kind of clear-cut answer on which is the right thing to do. And other brands, for example, like Tough Pup, we built it from the ground up. Um, and you can do either or, and luckily as we've grown a bit, it's, it's kind of opened up the options we have and the opportunities we have as we're able to make these types of acquisitions, but, uh, we're not making acquisitions just to make acquisitions. They have to be a strategic fit for our overall plan. It has to make sense for the roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what I heard you say was not only were they strategic fit, but, uh, they had a key asset that you, you yeah. wanted to get, right. Exactly. That was that maybe you couldn't get any other way. That you couldn't build on your own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excellent. Excellent. So having having built several of these businesses, they're e-commerce based, sort of what have been some of the lessons you have learned in sort of this e-commerce space? Oh, man, learned a lot of lessons. I promise you that. Um, and, you know, we like to talk about how glamorous life is uh, in, in entrepreneurship, especially when you're looking at, you know, Facebook and Instagram, social media. But you know, it's not for everybody, and I always, I always like to, um, I always like to pitch e starting entrepreneurship with a bit of measured caution, right? Um, you know, 
first off, you have to be uh, you have to be an optimist, right? And anybody anybody who's going to start a pet product company or start a, start a business in general has to be an optimist because I don't think it's going to work. It's just like uh, there's a famous astronaut that uh, said, you know, you have to be an optimist to be an astronaut. Otherwise, why would you strap yourself to 10,000 pounds of liquid nitrogen on top of a rocket, right? You have to think that things are going to go well and you have to have a positive attitude about it. And I think that that's critically important in entrepreneurship is optimism is kind of anti into the game. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is oftentimes, even though we encourage entrepreneurship and I think it's 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 important. Not everybody is built for this because, you know, the first five, six years that we started the company, even though I, I tell you the, the good stories that we have and, and some of the fond uh, milestones that we've made, it was incredibly tough. It took an incredible amount of sacrifice. Um, you know, you're making less money than you've ever made, trying to sell things to, so you can pay your people. You're selling things on Friday and hoping you have good sales on Saturday and Sunday or you're not going to be able to pay your people on Monday. And we went through several years of that sell to survive. And, and then eventually, um, you know, with enough tenacity and resilience and, and, you know, we started to make some forward progress and started to started to grow and thrive. Um, back to your question, though. I mean, I could give a thousand tips on on uh, on starting off in e-commerce or in our brand. You know, you got to be really careful with um, who you hire. I think that's a, a super important thing, not just internally, but externally. Oftentimes we look to. Um, uh, hire firms or hire people that we think have uh, skills. And I, I think that's necessary because I'm a big believer in 80-20 and, and uh, doing what you're great at and finding somebody else to do the rest. But in the beginning, you kind of have to be a student of the game. You kind of have to learn um, a lot of different strategies in order to be successful. And I think as you grow, the knowledge that you gain early on um, serves you well. It allows you to be a wise purveyor of like digital marketing services, for example. If you don't know anything about digital marketing and you go and hire a digital marketing firm, it's not going to be a very successful relationship and it's going to cost you a lot of money. You need to know at least enough to be dangerous. And so I think, um, you know, just to kind of uh, summarize that, you know, be careful with who you hire. Uh, you have to be an optimist. And I think that Ultimately, that that love for learning and that quest for more knowledge, and whether it be Kaizen principles or continuous improvement, you have to you have to be able to learn new skills and and be hungry to learn new skills. Otherwise, I don't think it's, there's any way you can make it without that. Yeah, well said, well said. So, as as people start out, or as you were starting out, <clears throat> how did you sort of balance the notion of building your own website? <clears throat> selling things to your website versus trying to sell stuff on Amazon or Walmart or, or some, some other commerce platform? Uh, I really like that question. Um, it's tough, right? Uh, you know, in the beginning, like I said, we had, um, we were selling in retail stores, right? And I remember we had a, we had a retail store in, uh, Kansas city. We're in Wichita, Kansas. It's about a two and a half hour drive. And I remember we sold some beds to them and, and we were all excited about it, but guess what? You know, we got to pay the bills and that you, know, you got to find more sales. You got to find a way to survive and succeed. So we started, we started uh, running a sale on our website and uh, didn't think too much about it. We were just trying to keep things afloat, but uh, we got a knock on our door uh, and we open it and we're in some small little office park. And there is a truck with a trailer full of dog beds from Kansas city that the, uh, the, the pet store owner was so pissed at us that we ran a sale that they had drove all the way down there and demanded a return and we gave it to them. And I understood it at the time. I, I think it was a little bit of a, maybe 
it could have been handled better, I think, on, on both sides. But ultimately, it's a balancing act. You know, you have to understand where your partners are and what, what value do they bring. Um, are they just wanting to list your product on their website or are they willing to invest in the partnership? Are they willing to bring more traffic and a more awareness? Are they willing to double expose your products into multiple categories? What are they really bringing from a partner standpoint? Um, I think that's incredibly important and you need to know how to balance that for everybody because if it's not working, if it's not working uh, for the partnership, it's not going to last very long, right? And so I guess ultimately, you know, selling products online and selling, if you sell it through your own site, um, you own the relationship. If you sell it through Amazon, they own the relationship. Um, Amazon's never been a fantastic play, for example, on our dog beds, just because going back to that analogy, uh, the bike shop or the, the dog bed business, you know, Amazon, our beds are on a, 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 on a large shelf full of thousands and thousands of other competing dog beds. A lot of Chinese dog beds that are an exact ripoff and, and I mean, an emulation is kind of a nice way to say it uh, of our product exactly. And so even though we have a superior product, it's handmade and we have, you know, uh, extra strong thread that's five times the strength and premium materials and it's handcrafted in our facility here in Kansas, it doesn't matter because unless you're able to get into consideration, you're not able to articulate the value. And so I think that uh, being able to have your own website, being able to own the relationship with the customer is incredibly important. And just to take it one step further, I think that is transactionally, well, that is what's going to make the difference versus being transactional um, going forward. Because if you think that you're going to build a company online in 2021, and you're going to have better pricing than Amazon, better logistics than Amazon, or better brand awareness and trust than Amazon, you're probably setting yourself up to fail. You need to find how, to, how can we build relationships with our customers? How can we um, encourage customers to buy from us, not because it's the cheapest or the fastest shipping, but because they truly resonate with who you are as a brand and you speak to them. And ultimately, what I would want to share with people is how, how can you help your customer tell their story through your brand and your products? And that would be a point of emphasis yeah. I, would, I would tell people to focus on. Yeah. One of the ways that I think about that is you got to decide which metrics you want to compete on. Do you want to compete on shipping? Do you want to compete on price? Or do you want to compete on connecting with a customer or quality or, you know, some other some other sure. attribute, right? And, you, and you, as a business person, you have to select which one of those you want to compete on because you can't compete on all of them. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't be a cost leader and a highly differentiated person in the market at the same right. time. You have to understand who you are, what you are, and where your role plays. And for most people listening to your podcast, it's probably not cost leadership, right? They're probably not going to be the cheapest. You probably can't, you can't get the same economy of scale as some of the larger competitors in the space. So you really need to ask yourself, really, where do we compete? And don't tell me service, okay? Because I hear a lot of people say, well, the difference between our company is, is we offer a fantastic service. You know what? That's, that can be a differentiator compared to you know, Amazon or someone else that maybe doesn't uh, have a live person on the phone you can reach out. But, but that's just any end of the game. You have to provide a high level of service if you're going to be successful, period. And it's not a differentiator. It's just what's expected these days. So that's right. think of something better than just service. Service is just, uh, is just another thing that you need to be good at. You really need to figure out how can you either control your supply chain and the products and make sure that you understand how to control the pricing integrity as well because map pricing is super important. And something I don't think people understand oftentimes is that Amazon actually, and by the way, I'm not anti-Amazon. I just realized this is coming out of my mouth. It's sounding very anti-Amazon. But at the end of the day, Amazon does encourage people to destroy the pricing integrity of their products. 
if I'm selling my dog beds and you are another retailer selling my dog beds, it's going to prompt you and say, hey, you are not the most affordable one on Amazon. Click this one button and we'll drop your price down below the competition. And then you'll do that. And guess what? You'll win the buy box and you'll get some more sales because you'll be the number one listing. But at the same note, it's as soon as you do that, it's going to send me a note that says, hey, you are no longer the cheapest one on Amazon. Click this button and we'll lower your price. And so it's the it's the literal race to the bottom. And so oftentimes people bring their products on Amazon and if they don't control the if they don't control the supply chain and they don't and they're not curating who they allow to sell their product it just absolutely decimates the pricing integrity that you built in the product because they encourage a race to the bottom right right well they compete on price so they're motivated to to do it that way absolutely hey, you know what am i like there's something i like to share with people that i heard that they say hey, google knows what you're looking for facebook knows what you like but amazon knows what you want to buy and Amazon's not focused on serving the most relevant result to your query like get Google might be. They're interested in serving what they think you're going to maybe purchase, right? That's right. And that's, that's something to keep in mind. That's right. So I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, something you mentioned there, which is supply chain. So you you sell products that are tangible, things that get put into a box that the UPS guy comes and delivers, right? So yep. how do you think about su supply chain? How did you set that up? Uh, and what were some of the challenges in that? Huh. So supply chain has probably been uh, our biggest challenge as a company over the years, and especially when it comes to scaling, right? Because it takes money to scale. It takes money to bring in inventory. So, you know, for years we operated with a JIT system, a just-in-time system that was, you know, kind of, uh, it was a variation of what Toyota invented um, with their production system. And the whole principle between JIT is you have just enough material to make uh, the, just enough products to ship just in time for the customer. And, and it's a way of running lean. And so we did that for years. The problem is um, our products for the, first, for the first six years were used a specialized fabric that had only one single source supplier. So when being married to a single source supplier is a very bad thing because uh, although it can be uh, it can differentiate your product. At the end of the day, if they're out of if they're out of material, you're out of material. If they're late on their orders, you're late on your orders. And so, uh, Buddy Rest in particular had a lot of challenges revolving around how do we uh, how do we bring in inventory and and but not spend a ton of money doing it. So it's a pretty tricky thing. Only until we got away from the single source supply issue um, did things start to open up. And not only that, I mean only. Then did we actually start to make a lot of investments? And you can also, once you have enough volume, you can start to leverage your inventory for uh, inventory-based uh, financing. And then, so that that's really what we use to grow our inventory. And now, so today, we are fully stocked on everything. We've got massive amounts of material, and we're always creating as many products as we can. And our goal is to ship as fast as possible. And that's super important because no one wants to wait 14 days. Keep in mind, um, you know, I don't want to use Amazon as, as the word of the day, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're looking to deliver the same day. And they can do that in a lot of markets right now in 2021. Somebody orders something, it shows up at their doorstep that same day. So if you're thinking about, you know, um, supply chains and made to order, that can work as long as you're making something bespoke or something that's uh, custom made or 
has some sort of personalization. Yeah. But otherwise, you've got to get with the times, and it has to be fast shipping. And the only way to really accomplish that is to carry inventory and have stuff ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, do you guys uh, manufacture? You have your own manufacturing facilities, or do you use contract manufacturers? Uh, in the beginning, we made we uh, so the short answer is yes, we make it all ourselves. Um, the longer answer is we started off thinking, um, well, we just need need to hire a uh, an upholstery company. So we hired an upholstery company that made our dog beds, and uh, that didn't work out after a while. So we we found another upholstery company, and um, ultimately we decided, you know what? There's not much to this manufacturing stuff. We just need to, to cut it out, and someone needs to sew it, and then we package it up and ship it out, and it's super simple. And then. So we decided to take it all on in-house, and we hired some machine operators and all that. And what we quickly realized is that there is a lot more to manufacturing than than we thought. And we made probably every mistake possible from um, you know, having uh, inventory shortages, quality issues, to having um, uh, <laughs> having uh, all sorts of uh, waste of movement and, and lots of waste of materials. And so... I got to tell you that we do manufacture all of our products in-house and we're damn good at it, but it took us a long time to get there. And, and uh, nowadays, you know, all of our, all of our products are made right here in the U S um, which is a fantastic place to be, especially when you're dealing with uh, COVID supply chain issues, as well as uh, overseas trade wars, you know, being a domestic manufacturer is uh, definitely, uh, definitely glad that that's what we do here. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So before we start recording this, uh, you were telling me about a new uh, project you've started and a new business. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, our new project is our new or our new company is a technology company called ScanShop. Um, and you can learn more if you want to go to ScanShop.io. What we do is we actually take products and we digitize them into 3D assets. So what does that mean? Uh, we create 3D models out of your products. And why do why would somebody want a 3D model of their product? Well, by showing the product in 3D on your website and even using View in My Space augmented reality, which is available today on a lot of different platforms, you can increase your conversion rates by an average of 30 to 50% on page. And and the, the reason why is really simple is because by using a 3D model versus just a flat 2D still photography, you can give the customer unprecedented access to the to the product. They can spin the product on all axis. They can even look inside the product at some points. They can read the tag on the backside, and it really gives them uh, more increased confidence about the product itself because it sets a really good, uh, realistic impression of what the product's going to look like. Especially if you have a product that lends itself to view in my space, uh, for example, dog beds. So if you go to BuddyRest.com and you look at any of our products. You can actually open up the product page and you can actually go and put the product in augmented reality and see what the dog bed would look like in your living room. Now, why that's important more now than ever is because it bridges the gap between shopping in a store and shopping online at home. Because now you can actually see what the product's going to look like in your house, whether it be a piece of you know, a canvas art print on your wall or a piece of furniture. The augmented reality piece really bridges that gap and it really does a great job. Now, current... Current ways of digitizing products are really almost all uh, done by hand by human 3D modelers. So you, you send them some pictures of your product, or you send them your product, and they will create their interpretation of it. And it can, uh, a lot of the times it can look really uh, authentic and beautiful, but a lot of the times it's inauthentic and uh, doesn't really do your product justice. And the reason is, is because it's, it's someone's impression or rendering of the product. What we're doing is we're actually using proprietary scan technology 
that is super, uh, super cutting edge market world leader stuff that, uh, uh, that really takes the human component out of it and creates a digital replica. And so it's really game changing and, um, you know, and it's very accessible too. So, you know, if you want to increase your conversion rates online and you want to sell more product, you should definitely be looking into 3d asset creation. And if you want three, if you're not already, and if you want 3d asset creation in the easiest, most scalable, most affordable way, you can go to scanshop.io and learn more. Wow, that sounds great. It sounds like an exciting new uh, business endeavor for you. Kind of a little bit different than uh, dog beds and and things for pets. It is definitely a little bit different. I think what, you know, what led me down this path is that, you know, even though we are a pet products manufacturing company, we are very deep into e-commerce, e-commerce technology, digital marketing, because it doesn't matter how great your product is, like I said, if you're not able to articulate the value to the audiences, right? So this is just another way, another tool of being able to articulate and educate that customer, just like we were talking about earlier. Increase their confidence in the product, set realistic expectations, and they know that what they saw on your website is what's going to show up at the door. It's also going to reduce your returns, and it's going to create the most uh, amazing user experience on your website you could possibly provide. And oftentimes people think, it's, oh, that's really cool. I'd like to have that in the future. But you can use this right now on any Shopify website. You don't need to download an app for augmented reality. It's native. And so the time is absolutely now to get this done. Wow. Wow. That sounds really exciting. So Trevor, uh, is there anything that uh, I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh man, that's a tough, uh, that's a tough question. I think that she did such a great job. I mean, we could talk for hours about all sorts of different things, but uh, you know, the, the value that I hope to provide, you know, your listeners is, is, is not advice. Cause I'm not here to share advice with anybody. Um, I'm not in a position to give people advice and I just don't generally don't like the pretentiousness of people throwing, telling everybody what to do. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I can, I'm only here to share my experience. And if you guys found it valuable and helpful, I, I, I hope you did. Um, if not, um, maybe listen again. And if you still didn't, then, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, if you want to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you have a clubhouse account, uh, you can find me at Trevor J uh, and then uh, definitely check out buddyrest.com, naturaldoggy.com, and scanshop.io. We would love uh, to help you and uh, help you increase your success online with Scanshop, and we'd love to help make sure that your animals are happy and healthy at home with the rest of our pet products companies. Well, that's great, Trevor. You've been a wonderful guest. I will make sure all of that information is in the show notes, and uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. Super appreciate you having me, and thank you so much. Have a great day. Bela, interesting interview. I really like how Trevor saw an opportunity, built a startup, and then quickly evolved into e-commerce. You know, it was very clear that he learned quickly the challenges of taking a consumer, educating them to look at something differently than they had in the past, and then trying to do that in when you're competing with lots of other brands in a retail store. It's really, really challenging. And it's one thing that I've seen uh, throughout my entrepreneurial career when you're really trying to connect with a customer and kind of change how they view a product or a service. It's a huge challenge. Um, what struck you about Trevor's approach to building a company and delivering value to customers? Um, especially, he, you know, he was very specific in terms of he used some e-commerce channels and not others, like specifically Amazon. What were your thoughts on that, Bela? Yeah, so I think this is a challenge for, for a lot of companies. Uh, and there's several important things I want to try to address here. One, one is this notion of educating the consumer. And, and when, you're, when you're in a brick-and-mortar store, 
you, and, a, and a customer walks in, you have two types of customers. You have one type of customer that has already decided what they're going to buy. They've, they've done their research. They've, they've watched the advertising on TV or the radio or whatever, and, and they know the brand and the product they're going to buy. And then you have another type of customer that walks in, which knows generically that they want to buy a dog bed, for an example, but they don't have an idea of which model or brand they're going to buy. And oftentimes it's the, the sales associate, the person working in the store, that's going to guide that person to which one that they purchase. Uh, so the way I think about this and is, do, do, do you want to push the products? In other words, if it's the sales associate, it's the sales associate that's doing the education of, the, of your potential customer. It's the whole reason why drug companies do advertising for prescription-only drugs on TV so that you, those ads are not aimed at doctors. They're aimed at you, the consumer. So you go into the doctor's office saying, hey, I want this. I saw this drug on TV, and I think it solves my symptoms. So that's sort of pull, right? You're pulling that from, from the doctor. Uh, whereas if the advertising is only given to the doctor, he's the one that's going to convince you here's the right medicine for you. <clears throat> now, it, I don't, I'm not making a, a statement here that one way is better than the other, uh, particularly when it comes to, to medications. But I think on these consumer products as a business, you need to think about how you're going to do this. Who's going to do your educating? Because it's going to take a lot of resources either way. So you either need to to social media, uh, advertising, whatever, to educate your potential customers, or is it going to be the store and the retail channel? Both of those take a lot of time and energy. So you got to, number one, figure out what you're going to do there. Uh, so I think that's one key point. Another point I wanted to make is this notion about high end in, in a crowded market. So you have to decide what you want to compete on. Do you want to compete on price? Or do you want to compete on some other attribute of your product? And Trevor said he, they wanted to, you know, make the best dog bed there is out there. And he didn't think for a certain segment of the market, price would be an issue. And, and so they're, they're going after that end of the market. And so you want to be clear when you enter a market that's crowded, what's your niche? And price is a difficult niche to compete on. Very challenging. So, you know, I always tend to look at what other metric do you want to compete on and be clear about it. Be clear about it to yourself. Be clear about it to your distribution channel. Be clear about it in your advertising and your promotional materials. Uh, so I think, you know, those are two things that I took away from my conversation with, with Trevor. How about you, Mike? Agreed, Bela. I, I was really struck by how he took this single product and then moved to a family of brands. And I like how... He did this through a combination of acquisitions and then organic growth, kind of doing it, um, you know, on his own. Um, what was your take on Trevor's growth strategy and his kind of multiple brand approach? Yeah, so th this comes down to, uh, you know, I think having multiple brands is good because if you have a single brand and your company is identified with one brand, uh, sometimes uh, through no fault of your own, bad things can happen to your brand. <laughs> Right. You, you can have a supply chain problem. You can have uh, a bad batch that goes out uh, unbeknownst to you 
uh, for whatever reason, and and you get, develop a, a bad reputation in the marketplace. You can have distribution challenges on a particular brand. So there's lots of things that can happen if you're a single brand company or a single product company um, is maybe a more accurate way of saying that. So having multiple products um, is, I think, a key important element of any solid business. And I go back to uh, one of our previous episodes, uh, Carl Allen, episode uh, 113, who talked about acquiring versus building your own. Remember, he was the guy that we talked about from an entrepreneurial perspective. You know, the percentage of startups that fail is much higher than the percentage of companies that people acquire that fail. So this notion of acquiring something as opposed to starting your own and the advantages to acquiring a business as opposed to starting your own. And I think I think uh, Trevor uh, did a nice job at that by acquiring brands and products that he could build into his company and strengthen strengthen his footprint out in the consumer space. Yeah, it's almost like he took us, kind of looked at the landscape and said, ah, here I can grow by buying better. And then here there's nothing out there that fits my needs, so I'm going to grow this brand. And I really thought that was a really cool way to approach this. So I thought that was great, too. I also liked his guidance on not relying solely on, say, digital marketing agencies for his digital marketing work. Um, and that his kind of mantra that any entrepreneur needs to know enough about the business, in this case, digital marketing, to make that relationship work. If you walk in, you don't know anything, you're going to be in big trouble. Okay. Um, and, you know, he really he had this passion for continuous learning, whether it was learning how to make the beds right when he was they brought the manufacturing in-house or um, how to market effectively digitally but now you know Bela we've talked to many different people over the last couple of years and you know you get sometimes people say hey focus on what you're really good at and outsource everything else right this core competency approach that we teach right versus what uh, Trevor was saying which is hey you better make sure that you know enough to be dangerous like he said of all the different aspects of your business Kind of putting on your VC hat, what do you want to see, especially new entrepreneurs? Which approach do you want them to take? So uh, uh, I, I like to flavor it slightly different than do what you're good at. Uh, I like to flavor it as make sure you know how to do what's important to your business. So there's certain aspects of every business that are critical. Uh, it may be the, how the how your product is manufactured. It may be how you how your product is distributed. It may be your supply chain is the most important. It may be your intellectual property. But pick the two or three or four things that are absolutely critical to the success of your business. And I like to think about keeping those inside. You control those. And take the things that are less important and let's and let vendors and suppliers do those things. However, I do agree with Trevor that Every entrepreneur, every business owner has to have a minimum level of competence in all disciplines, right? You may farm out your accounting, but you certainly still have to understand sort of the rudimentary things about accounting. You have to have an idea of, you know, a balance sheet and a P&L statement and cash flow. You may not have to understand whether this particular item gets categorized as an expense or a capital uh, 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 item or if it goes into this category or that category, but you certainly have to sort of have some fundamental knowledge. And I think that's true, whether it be accounting or marketing or finance or social media, all of these things 
that are all elements of your business, you have to have some rudimentary understanding of them. And then the, I feel the ones that are absolutely critical to your business, the ones that without your business is not successful, then those I think you want to you want to control yourself, not yourself as an individual, but you want to keep them inside the four walls of your business. Depth in what's important, but breadth in kind of all these secondary areas that you need to know something about law or accounting or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And then, and then I really liked his approach to always keep learning, that that was just an important part because your market's always changing and your competition's always changing. So that's something I think that both of us have really emphasized with our students is entrepreneurs need to have this continuous learning to be successful. That's a great point, Mike. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about is this notion of distribution and channel conflict. So it's okay to have brick-and-mortar distribution uh, direct. You sell it direct on your website, your product, and you go through each e-commerce channels like Amazon or Etsy or whatever. The challenge that you have to be careful about, in addition to the time and energy it takes to manage all those channels and to educate them and to make keep them happy, but the other thing is ch what I call channel conflict is I've seen companies oftentimes will do a 20% sale on their website, but they don't offer that same incentive to their brick-and-mortar distribution side. And that just pisses off the brick-and-mortar folks because customers are walking in and saying, hey, wait a minute, I can buy this same product for 20% less directly from the company. So you have to be careful if you have multiple distribution channels that you manage them carefully and you don't get one, you don't give one an advantage on price or delivery or something that you don't give the other because it will piss that channel off. And remember, uh, Trevor even talked about that where, where he got the big shipment of dog beds back from one of the retailers. <laughs> he said, here they are. <laughs> and he just sent them back to them. And they're not going to pay the bill. So you have no choice, right? So if you give them terms, which you got to give terms to all these folks, and you ship them a bunch of product, and then for some reason they get pissed off at you, they'll ship it back to you and not pay the bill. And, and you're screwed. So managing various different channels is important. And, and making sure that you don't pit one against the other is really, really important as well. So I just wanted to bring that up. Great point, Bela. And it, this is one of your an entrepreneur. Big companies screw this up all the time, too. We see this time and time again. It's something I teach both in entrepreneurship and also in strategic management because it seems simple and it seems obvious, but a lot of people screw this up multiple times. So, you know, going back to, to I think, uh, what Trevor said, it's, you know, being a, a one-trial learner, right? Try not to make that mistake at all, but you really, you, you don't want to piss off the people you rely on um, that are your direct connection with the customer. It never works. So, yeah, all great points and a great interview, Bela. Thanks. What do you think? Should we wrap it up? Sounds good to me, Mike. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us. And we hope you found this episode interesting and thought-provoking. If you have questions about what we've discussed, we always uh, are happy to hear from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Yeah, and please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Great, Bela. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. From over here in Münster, Germany, we'll see you soon. <laughs>